0: All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have a special guest with us. Tonight, we have the co-host of the Canadian Investor podcast, Simone Belanger. Uh, My French is very rusty, so hopefully that was okay. Simone is here to talk to us about crypto. Bitcoin, Web3, maybe some NFTs. So this is something that we've never really touched on. And we thought we would have Simone on to talk to us about some of those things because he's kind of the resident expert, if you will. And he knows way more about it than we do. And he's a big investor in Bitcoin. And I think he even talked Braden into it as well. So uh, this should be a very interesting conversation. Uh, Simone, thank you for joining us today. And yeah, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and kind of start our conversation off. Sure. So we're going to go tough on you. And hopefully, <laughs> That's all right.
1: hopefully, we can keep it simple too. <laughs> but this is a really fascinating topic. A lot of it is. And there's a lot of good information I'm sure you're going to share with us. So I want to start by asking, why should people care about Bitcoin?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Before I get started, though, Dave, you said my name very well. Oh, thank you. you. (laughs) Simone, that's usually what people will say. But uh, yeah, but that's a great question to get started. So I think before I get into a bit more details about Bitcoin, just give a brief history of money for people, just a historical context. You start considering Bitcoin a bit more and understanding why it has value for a lot of people and why it's gained so much adoption in the past uh, couple of years or, well, 10 years or more since its inception. So money, you know, as its simplest form, it's used as value. So if I work, for example, I do some work, you guys give me money for the value I give you. So that's really the basis of any monetary system. There has been tons of different types of money in the past. One of the most important things about money is just that people can trust it and really trust it to keep its future, its value for the future. And the money we know today actually began centuries ago, but it evolved over time. And the world used to be on what we call the gold standard. And I'm sure you guys have heard that before. So essentially, this means that the real money was gold so banks used to keep gold in reserve and issue paper which you could transact with because you know gold was just it's not very easy to transact if you have a barrel of gold you know you have to go it's heavy it's just not not very convenient and then at any time you could bring that paper money in exchange for gold in 1971 the us under nixon they ended that convertibility of the u.s dollars took hold, and then since then essentially the u.s but also the world because the u.s is the reserve currency uh, fell into a fiat standard so fiat is a word i'll probably say a lot, a lot i'm sure people have heard it especially in the news you hear it a lot more with uh, bitcoin gain a lot of adoption so it just means uh, by decree so it's a latin word and in other words the money Fiat money has value because it is legal tender and basically enforced by governments. So that's why it has value. The problem with that is it means there's no really cap on the money supply. So the total money that the governments issue in the economy and that cap is controlled by governments. And I'm not trying to, you know, get into the whole government thing. And I know, you know, the whole world is very politicized right now. But the reality is wherever you live, uh, central banks who are in charge of that money supply um, they're also becoming increasingly uh, political, right? So you see it in the US, you see it in Canada. So they often have a dual mandate, you know, create jobs, but also having a hold on inflation. I think that's the stance in the US and it's kind of similar in Canada. And just for context here, the US M2 money supply. So that's the total amount of money in circulation. In 1992, it was $3.4 trillion. And in 2021, it's 21 trillion. If you wrap your head around that, the actual increase from 2019 to 2020 was bigger than the total money supply in the 1990s, in the early 1990s. So that's one of the main reasons where people get very bullish on Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is capped at 21 million Bitcoins in total, there will never be any more than that. And the inflation take is probably, yeah, the most common reason that people get really bullish on Bitcoin.
1: So can you repeat the money supply growth?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the growth over the past three years, for example, if we want to look at a percentage, so it's grown from 2018 to 2019, it's grown 4%, 2019 to 2020, 7%. And then the real growth just happened in 2020 with COVID uh, grew 25%. And then 2021, it was on pace to grow, I don't have the updated data, but it was on pace to grow around like mid teens in terms of percentage. And that's way higher and the uh, financial crisis in 2008-2009 which we're looking back then around like 6 to 10% depending on the years and the total in absolute value at the end of 2021 we were looking around 21 trillion and then in early 1990s we were looking around 3 trillion
1: yeah, I mean it really compound like growth really compounds especially at big numbers. Yeah. I'm just going to be the annoying devil's advocate today because Yeah.
2: That's, no, that's just okay. what
1: I try to do. <laughs> Dave knows all too well oh, from yes, our personal conversations. <laughs> oh yes. Could you make the argument? And I don't want to g- get into a huge like macroeconomic debate or anything, yeah. but could you make the argument that there was a lot of money that was destroyed during COVID from people going out of business, people going bankrupt, and so You know, similar to the way in World War II, we had a huge destruction of wealth and then they really ramped up the money supply. Could there be a parallel to that today? Or does the M2 kind of already take that into consideration?
2: Yeah, the, the M2 takes that into consideration. One of the issues that's been created with uh, COVID-19 measures, and obviously it's a bit different U.S. and Canada, but it's been fairly similar. Uh, the U.S., one of the things that they did that I personally think may was probably a mistake, and that's my just my own opinion, was these kind of universal stimulus checks. I know there was a cap on, you know, you had to have a certain income or less, but a lot of people got them, even though they still kept working, and still had their jobs. Whereas in Canada, I mean, you only were eligible if you lost your job for these type of support, or your business was affected, and so on. But we still had tons of measures. But these numbers are really is the total amount of money supply, and what most likely happened is some of that wealth that was destroyed. Like some people are really hurting and still are. There's no question about it. But it most likely got redistributed to oftentimes wealthier people, right? So that's most likely what happened. And then one of the big differences with the pandemic versus 2008, 2009, 2010 is a lot of people will say, well, you know, inflation didn't really happen then, so why is it different now? Well, if you go back to that time, one of the big differences is that there were not direct incentives to the population. There was huge bailouts, there was big increases, but for the most part, that total increase in money supply back then really just kind of stayed in the background and never really fully entered circulation, whereas now we're seeing it enter circulation, but also there's other things, right, without getting into the whole inflation macro talk, but there's other reasons as well where, you know, are you incentivizing people not to work? The supply chain disruptions, lockdown in other countries, the supply chains being on-time supply chain, so no margin of errors. And then you get this new money, people have money to spend, uh, just compounds everything, right? So that's my long-winded answer to
0: that. <laughs> was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerd wallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
1: So fair to say, like, if this kind of precedence of kind of helicopter money, however you want to call it, massive stimulus, if that continues and is sustainable for the future, that's a very bullish thing for Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, I would think so. And I mean there's other reasons right where people actually like Bitcoin. So one of the biggest things is it's also very transparent. So you can go on blockchain.com and type in any Bitcoin address and I can, you know, explain to people how to get started as well, you know, at some point too if they want to invest in Bitcoin, but you can basically view any transaction that ever happened. You can view the first transaction that ever happened, the Genesis block. On the blockchain, you'd be able to do that. And the other thing that's great about Bitcoin is it's completely decentralized. So it's not controlled by one person. And again, not to get political, but politicians, they put pressure on the, the federal bank, uh, the Fed in the U.S., but central banks. It happens all the time around the world. They're humans. They oftentimes have agendas they oftentimes have incentive to make the money supply grow. So it's always a good thing to, in my opinion, to have a money system that's decentralized. And there's a hard cap. So the 21 million Bitcoin will never increase. And it's also extremely divisible. People don't realize that because they see the price of Bitcoin being like 40K. And they think that, oh, my God, I missed out, right? It's 40,000. It used to be $100 10 years ago or whatever. Well, Bitcoin, actually, you don't need to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy like as little as like one Satoshi, which is eight decimals of one Bitcoin. So zero and then, you know, seven zero one. So there's really a lot of advantages of having Bitcoin. And it's also much faster in terms of getting settled than the traditional financial system. Because, you know, the payment that you do with Visa You might think it's quick, but it doesn't settle oftentimes for several days, right? That's why you see that pending transaction on your statement uh, when you go online.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So maybe we won't talk about how, like step by step, how easy is it to buy? Like if somebody wanted to go and buy some Bitcoin right now.
2: I think it's actually as easy as it's ever been. So the first time I bought it was one of my buddies who's been into crypto since like 2011. He's doing quite well right now, i <laughs> just say that. But uh, I bought it in 2013 and you had to buy it with a credit card and you had like a 5 or 10% fee to buy it. because And the exchanges were not reputable, so it was very difficult. And now, I mean, if people want to buy it, probably the 2 Best ones that I know would be either Coinbase or Kraken. So you can open an account. It is KYC. So if you hear that, KYC is just know your customer. So they will ask you for your information. But again, you create an account, then you're able to send some money over and you can buy Bitcoin very easily. Those sites will also offer you, you know, if you want to dabble in other cryptocurrencies, it'll be pretty easy for you to get into those as well. Uh, But that would be the easiest way. And then, You know, once you get a decent amount of money, I would say something to consider would be cold storage. So there's two types of storage when you have crypto. There is hot storage and cold storage. Hot storage just means that wherever your Bitcoin, for example, is stored, it's connected to the Internet. So there's always a risk of being hacked. One of the most famous hacks is the SIM card swap. So someone will gain access to, say, your email address. And you'll have two factor authentication with your phone and then they'll figure out your actual phone number and they'll call your telecom, your phone company, and they'll swap your phone number to their SIM card. They'll kind of impersonate you and then they'll be able to gain access to your account and then steal whatever crypto or Bitcoin that you have. So cold storage is the opposite. So it means that your Bitcoin would not be connected to the Internet. So essentially, there are these keys and you need to plug your key physically, enter a code, a pretty complex code, to be able to do a transaction without it. Um, you cannot do the transaction. So essentially, someone needs to know those physical keys to be able to steal your Bitcoin. And that's what I would recommend to anyone who has a decent amount of Bitcoin to offer cold storage. So
1: we have the hot stores of cold storage. Basically, if you want to get started, it's as easy as like opening a brokerage account. And from my understanding, Coinbase just went public. So based on that, they should, in theory, be regulated like some of the other brokerages are. At least there's attention there from the major financial institutions. One of the misconceptions about Bitcoin, and I know I had one when I first learned about a Bitcoin and the crypto and all that, was that like the government's just going to shut it down. Why is that very unlikely?
2: Yeah, so there's quite a few reasons. Well, first of all, let's just start with uh, China tried to shut it down or ban it. I mean, they did in their country, but it still didn't ban Bitcoin or didn't shut it down. So what that was ended recently, up happening, right? Yeah, that was in May of last year. They had been kind of flip-flopping and threatening about it, for, I think, for years. No one was taking them very seriously. And then all of a sudden, they actually did it seriously. Which, I mean, China, when they decide something unilaterally, they kind of just do it, right? It's the, the same thing for regulating their businesses. But to really understand why it would be extremely difficult, difficult for governments to shut it down is the way that a Bitcoin transaction is processed. So the blockchain, what it does is anytime there's a transactions, they're located in a block, and usually there's about 500. And when that block is completed, the next one is created, and then the next one is created. And It creates a chain. So that's why it's called a blockchain. So that's a long story short. That's why it's called a blockchain. And the way Bitcoin works is when if I send you some Bitcoin, uh, Andrew, so I send you a Bitcoin and what will happen is it will go to nodes. So nodes are just people running the Bitcoin software on their computer. Right now, there's about 15,000 nodes around the world. Of course, there's quite a few in the U.S. Canada is a pretty big place. Russia is one as well. And it will transmit that. And then you have Bitcoin miners who actually use computer to calculate this complex mathematical problem. And the first uh, Bitcoin miner, it's said like it's a miner, but it's a, a computer machine that calculates that. The first machine to solve the problem actually gets to add that new block with all those transactions that were transmitted to the different computer nodes running the Bitcoin process around the world. So all these nodes have to basically say, "Okay, this transaction is legit, it's good. And then the miner who wins the mathematical problem adds it to the uh, blockchain. The reason why it's important to understand that is in order for Bitcoin to be completely outlawed by governments, it would essentially... I mean, the Internet would have to be shut down around the world. That's essentially what would need to happen. And you guys know as well as I do, the world can't agree on anything. So I think uh, I don't think that would ever happen. I mean, you know, if it happens in the U.S., people move to potentially Canada or South America, they'll move to jurisdictions that are friendly to Bitcoin. And I think especially in the U.S. now, what we're seeing is uh, states are actually specific states are starting to fight over trying to get cryptocurrency and Bitcoin developers and people kind of, you know, the technology behind that, they're trying to get that talent over in their state. So you're seeing that more and more. I know, Texas, Florida, New York are three states that uh, just top of my mind that have been uh, very favorable recently for Bitcoin.
1: So can we make it like, simple again, maybe just in the act of repeating it, we will understand if we got lost so you have the blockchain and bitcoin and it's basically run on a computer and it's run on not just one computer; it's a computer computer program a bunch of of computers are all running at the same time all the way around the world i could run it right now if i wanted to on my computer for like a hundred bucks sure and then it's all tracking every bitcoin transaction and so as long as one or two people are running the network then bitcoin stays alive essentially
2: Pretty much because every Bitcoin computer that is the 15,000 number that I mentioned, well, these are called nodes. Anyone could run one. You don't need a souped up computer. This is basically a ledger of all the history of Bitcoin transaction from its start. So essentially, you know, if as long as there is one running, it can verify that the new transaction is legitimate. And obviously there's way more than that. So you'd have to shut them all down to be able to basically completely shut it down.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm going to ask them really dumb questions now. So, no, no,
2: that's- <laughs> I kind of follow what you're saying and
0: I vaguely understand some of this. So a couple questions that spring to my mind. So I guess the first is what's the difference between blockchain and Ethereum, for example? Because I've heard those two terms bandied about and I honestly don't really know what are they. So what's the difference between the two?
2: Yeah, so blockchain is the technology behind cryptocurrencies. Okay. So that's the easiest way to put it. Ethereum specifically is a different type of cryptocurrency. So Ethereum... Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin's a different type of cryptocurrency. Uh, Solana, there's tons of them. If you go on uh, CoinGecko, I think there's like thousands now that are there, but blockchain is essentially the technology behind it, and okay. it's just the the aspect of having a block connected to the next block, connecting to the next block from the beginning of time, if you'd like, and that creates a chain essentially. Yeah.
0: Okay. Then what is the difference between the coins? So what's the difference between Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Solano, or any other coin that
2: yeah. you mentioned? Yes, you know, cryptocurrencies can be quite different. So one thing I would recommend to people is make sure to research if you're looking to invest in other kinds of uh, cryptocurrencies, even Bitcoin, right? But for example, Bitcoin, in my opinion, uh, why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin specifically, it's its protocol. So all the things I talked to you about being fully decentralized, having a 21 million cap, you know, having a proof of work mechanism uh, without going into too much detail. That's just the uh, minor doing those mathematical problem those are all specific to bitcoin. Ethereum on the other hand does not have a cap supply, so that's one of the big differences there. One of the other big differences is that ethereum is actually a programmable blockchain. So it allows you to allows developers to actually create decentralized applications that are run by code. So a lot of the nfts, which is non-fungible tokens, for example, are based on the ethereum blockchain. Exam- I must
1: stop you just for a second. Yeah. But this is this is good. That's so it. when you say decentralized applications, can you give us like a practical example of what that might look like?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean it you could be, for example, like I know we were talking before coming here, Web3. So it could be that some Web3 programs could be programmed on the Ethereum blockchain. So that's how why Ethereum is so powerful is you can program tokens on it. If you've heard of stable coins that follow the U.S. dollars like USDC, uh, for example, well, USDC is actually a token that's on the Ethereum blockchain. It was the first of its kind. Now there's more like Solana another one that's a programmable blockchain. There are some differences, again, to the way the protocol runs compared to ethereum so for the most part that those will be the differences right is the protocol will be different from one one to the next uh, you have some cryptocurrencies as well if you i'm sure you've heard of dogecoin with elon musk tweeting away <laughs> all the time <laughs> well some of the high cryptocurrencies they have like one quadrillion in supply so you have these tiktok people or influencers that'll be like oh this is the next big one like it's like you know one hundredth of a cent, you know, if it only goes up to a dollar, you'll be rich. Well, if it goes up a dollar, the you know total value of that will be, what, a hundred times the total money in the world right now? Like, it doesn't... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just to show that there's a lot of different protocols. So if I had a recommendation to people is try to stick to some of the bigger ones and definitely do your research if you're looking to dabble in it. Yeah.
0: I mean, a lot of that makes sense. So I guess my next question before I think we kind of diverge is how do I if I own Bitcoin or if I own Ethereum, how do I use it? Can I use it to go to the store and buy some gas or buy my groceries?
2: Yes and no. So uh, yeah, you can. Yeah, so you can uh, basically how you I'll just use Bitcoin, because honestly, that is the one that I know the most about. I know the other ones, but I'm not as well versed. But yeah, when you use Bitcoin, so for example, Dave, I sold you uh, like my TV, for example, and you want to pay me a1,000 dollars worth of Bitcoin. So what I would do is I would give you my public Bitcoin address. And you would send me that amount, let's say 0.1 Bitcoin from your private address. And that's really important for people to understand. You can share your public address. That's fine because that's where people will send you the money on. But your private address you should never send because if someone gets a hold of your private Bitcoin address, that's where they can actually access your Bitcoin And send it to someone else. In terms of real world uses, one of the big limitations with Bitcoin is that there is a capacity limit for each block. Um, So that's why on average, there's about 500 transactions and it takes about 10 minutes for the transaction to go through before. So it's not ideal. But if you remember about the gold example... For the gold being, you know, the bank holds the gold, it's the actual form of money, your money, your paper money is just basically a way to exchange that you can use to exchange for gold anytime you want. Well, what some people started developing is actually a similar thing where Bitcoin is the gold and there's a network on top of it where you can make much faster transaction at a much lower cost for smaller items. And that's called the Lightning Network. And the Lightning Network is actually in use right now uh, in a country. It's legal tender, El Salvador. So they have USD and Bitcoin as legal tender over there. And what the Lightning Network does is we can actually open a channel, you and I, Dave. And let's say I would be probably better with Andrew, but let's say you and I, Dave, we want to play some poker. And uh, we each put one Bitcoin in that channel. So there's a total of two Bitcoin and then we play a lot of poker hands for hours and hours and then we're done at some point. You end up you know, with 1.5 Bitcoin, I end up with 0.5. When the channel is closed, that's when the transaction is transmitted on the uh, Bitcoin network. Okay. The Lightning network, which is on top of it, does the other transaction. Gotcha,
0: okay. So in the terms of Bitcoin, Being money, like we talked about kind of at the start, it sounds like it's more it doesn't have quite the functionality quite yet that using our debit card has doesn't. Is that am I right or wrong? I think you're right. Yeah, I think I I, I
2: would agree with that. I mean, uh, the Lightning Network is still relatively young. Uh, It's still, I think, about two years old, maybe a bit more. So just it's still in its infancy, it's grown quite a bit. The El Salvador experiment, experiment has been overall, I think, going very well. But until we have the potential of seeing it as, you know, everyday money, that could be years. It could be even decades. I mean, it could, it could also, never happen.
1: <laughs> it could also
2: never happen. Yeah, it yeah. could be. A lot of people think happen. there might be also be kind of a dual system, right, where you use Bitcoin a bit more as a longer term store of value. And then you spend your everyday, your everyday spending is done with fiat or USD, Canadian dollar, mm-hmm. euro, whatever uh, you use. So a lot of people kind of... S- speculate that you could see a dual system like that and one of the big things with bitcoin obviously that's scaring people is the volatility Mm -hmm. Uh, because it is volatile i think for the most part because a lot of people still associate it with more risk assets so like growth stocks If you look at growth stocks and Bitcoin, they have a pretty strong correlation, especially recently. So I think that's one part that scares a lot of people. So if anyone wants to get into space, I would say just invest a percentage of your investment that you're comfortable, you know, dropping 80% in value. It's not (laughs) the end of the world. I (laughs) say that because, you know, in the past year, it's dropped 50%, -hmm. more than 50% twice. Mm -hmm. It also once more than double after that 50% drop. So you have to be able to hold it and not panic. And uh, just keep in mind, say you put 1% of your investments in it. What's the worst that can happen? You lose that 1%, it's done. But if you're really bullish, and what a lot of people say is we're just in the early phases of the adoption of Bitcoin. And if that 10x is from now, just as an example, I'm not saying that it will, but if it does, it's going to grow to be a significant portion of your portfolio when it does so just always keep that in mind i personally have a pretty big chunk but i also have been dollar cost averaging for about 5 years now so i think it's important people to keep that in mind yeah those are I,
0: great points go ahead i really
1: like that idea of like the possibility of there being like a dual system or some sort of a hybrid i think one of the things that's so irritating frustrating and like just completely Thanks off-putting, wanna, off-putting. there's the word, thank you, is the fact that there's such extreme viewpoints on either side where it's like either your Bitcoin is going to take over the world or Bitcoin is going to zero. And from you know some of the basics of our conversation, there's a lot of factors that go into that and it's probably not going to be just one or the other. I mean, going back to Dave's questions about the practicality of using it as a transaction. One of the benefits of having a centralized company to do transactions like a Visa or MasterCard is if if my credit card gets stolen or my debit card gets stolen or there's some sort of fraud, Visa is going to foot that bill for me as part of their service because they're centralized, they know their customers. With something that's more decentralized, you don't always get that same layer of protection against fraud And, you know, to people who are less technologically sophisticated and don't want to carry around cold storage, (laughs) Dave raises his
2: hand. (laughs) So, you know,
1: there's reasons why we have centralized institutions, and that's not to say that Bitcoin's not a store of value at the same time.
2: Yeah, no, that's definitely a good point. And that's something, you know, when the thing with Bitcoin is when the transaction is done, it's non-reversible. You know, that's one of the disadvantages you just mentioned there. One of the advantages is people take it for granted because we live, you know, I live in Canada, you guys live in the US. But you know, one of the issues with fiat money is the funds can also be frozen. So it's a centralized entity. And you know, the government can say or the bank can say for whatever reason, right or wrong, we're freezing those funds. And that's one of the aspect that people also like. And, you know, I get that you don't want to be carrying the cold storage. But at the same time, there would be ways of you know, keeping the vast majority in cold storage and also keeping like a smaller amount where you can spend every day. I agree with you. People are very passionate on both sides. Even, uh, you know, Bitcoin in, in the crypto space, you see a lot of people that are called Bitcoin maximalists, so maxis, and they basically, it's only Bitcoin, nothing else. And I try to have more of an open mind. Yes, I have the strongest conviction in Bitcoin. But I do hold some Ethereum as well, and I'm not against owning potentially other cryptocurrencies if I find that there is a lot of potential and good value. And I think to me, that's how people should really approach, especially that some not they're not all like that, but some Bitcoin maximalists are so intense, I think they even scare people away from Bitcoin. And I think they make it really intimidating. And I, I try to really explain it. I mean, there's other ways too, to invest in Bitcoin. You don't have to hold it directly. And one of the ways, especially for your listeners, I'm sure most of them have brokerage accounts. So you could look and, you know, just using your brokerage account and buy a Bitcoin ETF. But if you buy a Bitcoin ETF, do not buy the U.S. Bitcoin ETFs because <laughs> they are futures Bitcoin ETFs and they're high fees And they're meant to be traded, not to buy and hold. Um, There's actually Bitcoin ETFs that are traded in Canada in USD. And those are the ones that I would recommend people buying if they're looking to get exposure to Bitcoin but are not ready of like, you know, like you, Dave, for example, not ready to have that cold storage and actually Mm -hmm. like plunging in. That's an easy way to, to get exposure to it, like some direct exposure to Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, another way thinking kind of along those lines, maybe not direct owning of Bitcoin would be to buy a company like Square, you know, because Jack Dorsey has obviously been a very big proponent of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular, I guess he would probably be a maxi because <laughs> he's, he's Bitcoin and, and nothing else. And there's another, Michael Saylor, I can't remember the name of his company. Uh,
2: MicroStrategy.
0: Yeah, they're a big proponent of Bitcoin as well. So I guess that would be a, a way to indirectly own some Bitcoin as well.
2: Yeah, Coinbase would be another one. Uh, even PayPal, they do have some Bitcoin services. And uh, for people too, I, I forgot to mention, you can buy in the US with the Cash app you can buy Bitcoin. Yeah. So I did it for my little cousin who lives in Syracuse. I went to visit them <laughs> around Thanksgiving and I was like, okay, you know what? He's actually my godson. So I sent it 50 bucks worth of Bitcoin <laughs> on his cash app. <laughs> so just to get him, I'm like, you know what? I'll just send it. At least you have some, uh, whatever happens. But yeah, there's definitely different ways. There's also Bitcoin mining companies um, that you can buy. There's some listed in the US. I'm Yeah, there's some listed in the US or some listed in Canada. The only thing is, I'll tell you now, it can be a bit tricky to look at the financials for those business because their cash flow statements will probably look all out of whack without going into too much detail. But essentially what happens is that they'll produce a lot of Bitcoin because they're mining Bitcoin. So they're getting Bitcoin rewards when they complete those mathematical problems I was talking about before. So they get paid in Bitcoin, but what happens to a lot of them is they don't want to sell it for cash, for fiat. They'll sell whatever they need to pay their expenses, and then they'll add the Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So what ends up happening is this like weird accounting thing uh, with their cash flow statement, where you see like huge negative cash flows, but that's because they kind of transfer it from there to their balance sheet.
1: So I'm going to backpedal us kind of back to where we were starting to go. So, this concept of Web3, and for my basic understanding of some of this stuff, I almost see, and this is part of what makes it so confusing, especially for somebody who doesn't know anything about some of these concepts. So, like, I almost see Ethereum as a completely separate thing than Bitcoin. And I almost see it not so much as a cryptocurrency. It helps me to conceptualize it not as a currency, but as like computer code or like when I think of the internet or websites. Ethereum's like the next evolution of that. And it's really different from Bitcoin. And so it's too bad that they're kind of grouped together. And that's either, you know, you think you're talking about Ethereum, you're talking about Bitcoin. So can you like explain that Web3 concept and how that applies to Ethereum and why the future seems to be moving towards that?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. I agree with you. I think it's they're completely different, Ethereum and Bitcoin, without getting to that whole debate. So Web3, the best way to explain it is just starting with Web1. So Web1, easy way to wrap your heads around it, especially those who uh, are probably in their, what, below 30. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we all uh, remember what it was, but it's basically the 1990s, what the internet was back then. An easy way to think about it is just the read-only internet, so back then you was a lot of just you know publish a page you'd have your you know you wanted to create a personal page or you wanted to just you'd have news site that would just publish an article and it was not interactive at all you would just Read it. One of the things that we're still seeing today, a legacy from Web One, is actually we were talking about that is emails, right? So we still use emails today. Well, emails actually started back in the day. For those of you who want to get nostalgic, just look up Alta Vista, for example. You know that's what came before <laughs> Google and Yahoo. Uh, well, we still know Yahoo, but uh, that's basically Web One. Web Two is what we know. Today, basically, so Web two is read and write. So you get this environment where you interact with the websites a lot more. This is where the massive centralized companies like a Google, Amazon, even Apple to some extent, Facebook, all these massive companies, they're all Web two companies. So yes, uh, they've been great investments if you own them for a while. I mean, good for you because you've you've done quite well. But there's a lot of centralization. So it's always owned by a few people. You use the services oftentimes for free, but you know, they make money. Another way oftentimes is actually just using your data. So that's the web two portion. And then web three is actually an read, write and own the internet. So instead of having this massive centralized company like a Google well, you actually own part of the Internet. So you still interact with it. There's a lot of interaction, but you can own part of the ecosystem that you're with. So we were talking before recording, you could, you know, you on something that is play, uh, play to earn. So you play a game that's completely decentralized. It's developed by the community that have stakes in the game. So it's not owned by a specific company. And you actually get rewards when you play with tokens that you can exchange in real world currency or use that have a real world currency value that you could exchange for US dollars. You could play a game like uh, similar to World of Warcraft, for example, or I like Diablo 2, where the items that you find are actually unique, so they cannot be copied or anything. They're actually unique, and they can have value if you want to exchange them for people and things like that. So that's kind of a a good example of Web3.
1: So just to take another example, so let's say we have our favorite social media website we like to use. And so right now, I just use a social media website, and they sell my data, and they make money off of me. You're saying Web three, there are social media platforms out there where you interact, and as you interact, you kind of earn this token, and part of owning that token means you also own part of the website or wh- wherever this social media app lives.
2: Is yeah, yeah, you you own part of the network. So one that's I know a little bit about, but one of my buddies that I mentioned, he's been into uh, crypto forever, and it's called the BAT token. So the the basic attention token. So there's a bad browser. So instead of adding your Google Chrome where, you know, you get all these ads that are targeted for you based on your search history and all that stuff. Well, bad actually, you can opt in or out of advertisement. And if you opt in, you actually receive compensation for seeing those advertisements. So that's a good example of a kind of early stages Web three. It's live right now, so people can actually like sign up and use it. I've downloaded it. I'm too lazy. I haven't gone into it uh, yet. I'll be honest, but it is on uh, something I'd like to to try out. So you actually get compensated for looking at ads instead of Google getting all that money or Facebook or whoever it is. Yeah.
1: Going back to the the game example, then. What makes that so different than the game options we have now?
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the differences right now is you don't really have many games where there are kind of these unique items where, for example, you can never duplicate. Uh, So I can't really think of any uh, right now. And for most of these games, I mean, you play, you pay, you know, the company Blizzard or whoever it is that created the game, whether you pay a subscription or you paid the price of the game and then you play the game. These games could very well be free and then. The community, there's developers in the community as changes are proposed to the game, uh, because you play it, because you have a stake in that network, in that game, you can actually vote on these games. So you really have a say on the infrastructure being built uh, behind it. So that's probably the biggest thing. Whereas... You know, the centralized version of games, I'm sure they would take people's feedback, but at the end of the day, if they don't want to do it, they don't do it, right? So they have the ultimate control. The play to iron is something that's really interesting if you're a gamer. I mean, you can make money out of streaming right now, but it's a way I think there are some, I can't remember the name, but I know there's, uh, I think it's Decentraland. I think you can make some money right now playing that game, for example.
1: So in theory, a decentralized maybe we can touch on like the benefits of decentralized platforms, Mm -hmm. because I kind of talked negatively about that earlier, but there's some obvious benefits to that too. But with a decentralized game, as an example, you in theory could have the people who love playing the game the most, who also own a big portion of the revenues from that game because they've collected enough tokens or, have invested enough tokens where they they have enough say in the game to be able to like vote on the direction the game goes
2: yeah, yeah, in theory you could definitely uh, do that, so the more you play, the more you get tokens, and the more you have say in the game itself. There's always an issue though that you know early adopters may be able to get more of a say and have a bigger say in the game, but again, you still have a say regardless as it's not a major say compared to the current state where you would have zero say unless you're maybe like, you know, the top 0.1% of streamers that gets millions of followers that people listen to that developers will listen to as well. So yeah, that's probably that's a good way. I mean, it's still very new. So I'm still learning on it. And it's kind of Web3 and the meta, they're not quite the same. People tend to interchange uh, them, the metaverse. First of all, no one really knows what the metaverse will be. You can ask five different people, you'll have five (laughs) different answers. I think anyone who says what they know, I think they may have an idea, but it may end up being completely different. But Web3, it's really that decentralized aspect. Part of the metaverse could be that. And the other part could be something built by Facebook, for example, because they have the resources and the programmers to be able to build that uh, world that Zuckerberg likes to really look awkward in.
0: (laughs) Doesn't he everywhere? (laughs)
1: Yeah. All right. So you have these different decentralized platforms, whether it's a game, whether it's a social media, whether it's some other website. And so they're basically built on a platform like Ethereum. And that's what makes a coin like Ethereum attractive because there could be a lot of different things built on top
2: of it. Exactly. Yeah. One of the biggest issues with Ethereum right now is the, the price for transactions. So it can be quite high at times. And that's probably one of the biggest issues. But one of the biggest things it has going for it And probably one of the reasons why we may not see a fully decentralized future is the network effect, right? There's a reason Bitcoin is so powerful is because it's been there since 2009. And I said, you know, the 15,000 computers running the uh, Bitcoin program. Well, that's a very powerful network effect. Same thing for Ethereum. Same thing for Facebook. A social media platform is all nice and dandy. But if none of your friends are on that platform, are you really going to go on it? I'm going to guess most likely not, right? You'll probably say, well, screw it. I know they're collecting my data, but all my friends are on there. Those are some really good points.
1: So how do we tie this all up? What's the practical <laughs> implication for people who are looking to it as investments or just to dabble? Like, what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, my take is I think it's definitely a mistake for not having at least a little bit of Bitcoin, you know, even if it's like I mentioned before, 0.5% doesn't matter, at least a little bit. So you kind of counterbalance your portfolio, it just gives you some diversification. And so that's probably the way I see it is just, you know just invest what you're comfortable but I'm well diversified too right I have about 15% of my portfolio in bitcoin and about like 7-8% in ethereum so and that's my old portfolio so it's a, it's a pretty good amount but I also have you know a lot of index funds I also have some very solid companies in my portfolio, so even if there's a lot of volatility, I don't really get phased by it. So that would be my best advice to people: is just invest what you're comfortable uh, with. And honestly, I'm you know if you're not ready to invest in Bitcoin, that's fine as well, right? You can still stay on the sidelines. We're still very early. But that's the one I would recommend if people want to get started. And then you can start learning on these other platforms, these other cryptocurrencies, and then potentially invest in those as you learn more. But definitely, I think Bitcoin's a good starting point for anyone.
0: Yeah, thank you. That was a very good measured take. And very rational, not so, I guess, crazy, like sometimes it can be when people have conversations about Bitcoin. And I appreciate, you know, kind of the level headedness of the way that you're presenting the ideas around Bitcoin and blockchain and some of the things that we talked about today. One of the things that has turned me off about it has been the, I guess, the maxi viewpoint of people. And I just struggle with it ever becoming a currency and. You know, that may or may not ever happen. Who knows? But that's one of the things that's kind of I personally have struggled with. You know, I'm older side of the curve than the two of you. So, you know, I have a different viewpoint. But I think the things that you brought up tonight were very well thought out. And appreciate you taking the time to talk to us tonight, Simone. That was a very interesting conversation. And I know I learned a ton. A lot of things that I didn't, wasn't aware of. Again, I get exposed to it on Twitter. And, you know, that is the wild, wild west. And I kind of feel like that maybe the crypto world is kind of the wild wild west and we're still in early early beginnings of all this
2: oh um, it is yeah. i totally agree with you it's yeah. not very regulated right now so and that's a really good point no exactly and governments have their eye on it uh, that's something to yeah. keep in mind but I totally agree with you. That's something I didn't really mention. But regulation will probably be coming and changing in the coming years. Mm -hmm. And that's something to keep an eye on where you have equities and stocks where you have a pretty good idea where the regulation is or could potentially be going. Sure, it can change. But that's definitely ever changing. But uh, yeah, I tried to make it as simple as I can. I know some of the concepts or a bit harder to explain because you get into like a lot of more complicated concept, but hopefully, yeah, you know, I made it a bit easier and you know, you can always DM me on Twitter if uh, you have some questions. Very
0: good. All right. Well, without any further ado, uh, thanks again, Simone, for coming on and and talking to us today. You can find him. uh, He's the co-host of the Canadian Investor, one of my favorite podcasts. It is is a fantastic show. I'm not just saying that because I like these guys. It really is a great show. So please download it, listen to it. It's worth your time. So without any further ado, do i'll go ahead and sign us off you guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety emphasis on the safety have a great week we'll talk to you all next week
2: we hope you enjoyed this content
1: seven steps to understanding the stock market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples get access today at stockmarketpdf.com until next time
2: 18 plus.